Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 19, verse 24. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. The idiocy of sin is readily apparent in this proverb. The blindness which the human heart is capable of is mind-boggling. Sin makes no sense. Here the observation is made that a lazy man won't even flex his bicep enough to lift the food from the bowl to his mouth. In light of this, here are a couple observations. First, God is life and light and movement. Thus everything that comes between us and him separates us from his life and light and energy. Every sin is a movement towards stagnation darkness and death. Here the lazy fool has his fingertips in the life-giving food, the blessing of God, and he won't even take the small step of putting it to his mouth. This reminds me of one of the proverbs my mother was constantly quoting to us as we grew up. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And this is a truism. Pet owners know this frustration. Teachers fight against it in their students, and it's a regular struggle for parents as they raise their children. Parents love their children. They give them good things. They want to bless them, and they give them wisdom and instruction in order to do this. They show them the way to achieve blessing. They teach the simple logic of A plus B equals C. For instance, if you finish your plate, you get dessert. Or if you study your test, you pass it. Or if you get your chores done, you get to play. However, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Sometimes children are frustrating. You can set everything up for them. You can do all the heavy lifting until all that is left for them to do is lift their proverbial hand from the bowl to their mouth. And yet they will not. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Laziness is sin, and sin is irrational. Arrgh. This is how we make God feel when we are lazy. He has given us a world full of blessings and good things, and he has given us power to pursue them. But when we bury our talents in the sand and fail to utilize his blessings, plant his seeds, or harvest his increases, we are foolish. But though God sees right through all of our excuses and our procrastinations and our sinful thoughts and our laziness, he loves us anyway. And that's why the lazy man gets hungry. That's why the rod is applied to the back of fools. It's because God is teaching them about himself and his world. Even a lazy man will bring his hand up from the bowl when he gets hungry enough. Perhaps he will learn this time around. All God expects of us is our humble and honest confession of our sin, and then he delights to forgive us and heal us and bless us. So let us confess our sins. Please kneel. Tom. 
Romans started out the book of Ecclesiastes with his first argument and telling us that the world and life in it is inscrutable to human wisdom. Repetitious cycles, work and death make life vain. So far in his second argument, he's told us that God is sovereign over time. But then he needed to defend that doctrine from the objections against it, injustice, oppression, death, envy, laziness, and loneliness. And finally, we've covered some of the advice he gives us regarding worship and money in light of God's sovereignty. Fear God and worship, and don't put your faith in money. But today's text is the conclusion of Solomon's second argument in the book. We've just finished looking at some pretty miserable folks. People whose lives are destroyed by riches and wealth. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, verse 10. Nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Verse 12. The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Verse 13. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. And verses 16 and 17. This also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And whatever profit he has, and what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. But immediately after Solomon's description of this vanity, he gives us our text this morning. And it's a counterexample to the severe evil of wealth pursued as an end in itself. The counterexample is the blessing of God's gifts, which include riches and wealth. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, our text. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God gives riches and wealth and given him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. So here Solomon puts us in a very points us in a very different direction from the despair of greed. He points us to the hope of faith. And he fills out the conclusion of his first argument. His first argument was that man's wisdom is empty. And here's this conclusion, which was from chapter 2, verses 24 to, 20 and six, 24 to 26. There is no good in a man that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from him, apart from God? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. Here in today's text, in the conclusion of the second argument, Solomon tells us, that, tells us that there's nothing better for a man than to do what he couldn't do on his own in the first, in the first argument. He said, there is no good in a man that he should eat and drink and that he should, his soul should enjoy good in his labor. There's, there's nothing in us that makes us capable of doing that on our own. But after Solomon proclaims the sovereignty of God, he says that even though there's nothing in us to do that, there's nothing better for us to do than to 
do that, to eat and drink and enjoy the good of our labor. A man must turn to God, and from God he receives his heritage. Our lot is from God. Our heritage is from God. Because we can't get it from ourselves, we must turn to Him. And it is a gift. Solomon's whole second argument gives us a deep joy because the whole point is that God is sovereign. And the faithful man, or rather the man of faith, can know joy and eat his food and drink his drink in the peace of knowing that God takes care of all the details. The joy is deep because now Solomon has explained that God's sovereignty makes it good and fitting to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all your labor, despite all the difficulties of believing in a sovereign God in a fallen world. And that's why he's answered the objections to God's authority or his power. So let's search out a bit what Solomon means by good and fitting. Back in chapter 3, at the start of his second argument, Solomon said that God makes everything beautiful, or fitting, the same word, in its time. In the light of this, what is wisdom? God has given every man a heritage. Every man has a lot. And that heritage is his. It's nobody else's. It's what God gave to him. And therefore, if God gives it to you, this is wisdom. Accept it. Because God is sovereign, and He makes everything beautiful in its time, you're kicking against the goats to be discontent with what He gives you. Accept what God gives to you. Embrace it, and rejoice in it. This is the result of living under the sun with a sovereign God. If you have peace with God, there's no reason to fear what He gives you. There's nothing that you have, and there's nothing that you are, and there's nothing that you have to deal with, or that you have to live with that God has not ordained. Solomon is every bit a high-octane Calvinist. He's unabashed at proclaiming God's sovereignty to the, the nitty-grittiest detail. He's, he's not afraid to say that God counts the hairs on your head or He ordains the circumstances in your life. Solomon started this second argument in the book with a beautiful poem about time. To everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. But he concludes this poem with a statement of faith in chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Everything happens in time. Your circumstances, your lot, it all happens in time. And this whole argument is that God is in control of time. And God makes everything beautiful in its time. So if God is in control, and you are in time, God has a plan for you, and your job is to search out what is the busyness, the stuff that God wants you to do, your job is to find out what it is that God has for you. The good and fitting thing for you to do is to accept God's will by faith and then proceed to do whatever it is that he gives you to do with it. But then Solomon tells us what that is. The good and fitting thing for you to do is to do whatever God tells you to do. And do it, do it with joy. 
In verse 18, here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. If you are alive, and I presume you all are, is a gift from God. He gives you your life, and he gives you your circumstances. What is fitting for you to do with it? Live it. Eat and drink. God gives you your food and your drink. He gives you your work. Enjoy it. Do it with gratitude and appreciation. Enjoy what God has given to you. And why? Because it is your portion. A sovereign God has given you a lot. He's given you a heritage. He's given you a portion. What you have and where you are is your lot in life, and God has given it to you. But our hearts retort to Solomon, and really to God. But Solomon, you don't understand, my life is hard. I have problems, it's not easy. I have sickness, or I have bills, or I'm poor, or I have whatever it is that gets in the way of your enjoyment. In our heart of hearts, we say to Solomon, you get to say that because you're Solomon. You had it all. Or we say to God, why have you made me thus? We are clay pots complaining to the potter. We complain because the task which God gives us gives to men is burdensome. Our labor is hard because the ground produces thorns and we have to live by the sweat of our brows. However, if we don't enjoy our heritage, if we don't embrace what God has given to us, if we don't live our lives in gratitude, then we are sinning. And we are disobeying. And this is a problem because we already saw what God has for the sinner. It's right there in the conclusion to the first argument. God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. If you want to sin, go ahead. You're just collecting for the people who are good before God. It, then it is true, empty, meaningless vanity. Your whole life is. If you want joy, if you want meaning in your life, stop the sinning. Enjoy what God has given to you. Embrace it. Don't sin, don't disobey. Solomon's desire is to instruct us in wisdom. And he wants to teach us how to enjoy life. We can't enjoy it by forcing ourselves to enjoy it. Try and make somebody love you by saying, you have to love me. Try and, try and, try and teach your, your pet to love you by just being harsh to them. It doesn't work. You can't force yourself to enjoy something. You have to change your attitude. We can't give meaning to vanity. We must learn to look at it in a different light. And the only light that works is God's light. Solomon already told us that whatever God does, it shall abide forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Solomon's answer to our retort is the simple explanation that this is what I've observed. This is, here's what I've seen. This isn't, this isn't about how you feel about it. 
God is sovereign, and you have to deal with that. But I've seen something, and what I've seen is this, is that if you want to enjoy what you have, if you want to eat and drink and enjoy the good of your work and your labor, you have to do it this way. And this way is by receiving the grace of God. Verse 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Solomon started his conclusion with these words. Here is what I have seen. And what he tells us here in verse 19 is that every man who he observes, who has the blessings of God and is faithful in his receiving of his heritage and rejoicing in his labor, is doing it with an attitude of gratitude. He does it with gratitude as a recipient of God's gifts. Our life is a gift from God. Our work is a gift from God. Our food and our drink, our clothing and our health, God gives us all. Humility is a gift from God. And salvation is a gift from God. Life starts with God and it ends with God. Blessings come from God and they return to Him. Just as our spirits do. It is always God, God, God. And men must learn this. This is the whole point of Solomon's argument, the whole second argument. God is sovereign and you are not. And God does it that men should learn to fear Him. We need to look to Him for His grace. Next, notice that God gives riches and wealth and the power to eat of it, but that is not the greater gift delineated here. If you have riches, praise God, it's a gift. If you have wealth, praise God, it's a gift. But his whole argument leading up to here has been saying, that's empty without God. It's just piling up despair because you won't find salvation. You won't find meaning in life if you're finding meaning in stuff. The, the real gift is the capacity to receive the heritage God gives us and rejoice in His labor. As to every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, God gave that, and given him power to eat of, eat of it, so not only does he have it, but he can, he can actually consume it to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. That is the real gift of God. That's the, that's the big gift that he's talking about here. If you can receive what God has given you, and if you can rejoice in the work he gives to you, praise God. That's a huge blessing. Wise men know that they are stewards. God gave it, and it is theirs to use and manipulate, but it is God's. You're just managing God's stuff. God gave you everything. It's all His. When we tithe, it's not because we're giving God His 10% so we can use our 90%. No, we, when we tithe, we give God a token that's saying, that no, this is all yours, God. Wise men remember that God requires an account of what is past. If God's sovereign over time and He judges the past, wise men remember that because God is sovereign over time. So how we use what God has given to us in time, we will answer for. We are stewards. The capacity to use the gifts God, the gifts of God as He intends, 
to eat and drink and to enjoy your work, that capacity is only possible by faith. And that's a gift of God too. By faith we can worship in spirit and truth and in true reverence and awe. By faith we are not tempted to lie in our vows or be irreverent in our worship. By faith we know that God exists. We can't see him, but we know he's there. By faith we can see sin and oppression and death and suffering and loneliness and know that despite all of that, God makes everything beautiful in its time. By faith we don't put our hopes and our dreams in our stuff. We see it as the vanity that it is. And we look to God through it. We, we see the blessing of God in it. But the blessing is from God. It's not in the stuff. It's not from the stuff. We don't love silver or increase. Instead, we love God because we have faith. By faith we accept our portion and we enjoy it with contentment and grace. By faith we can rejoice in our labor because it is for God's glory. And whatever he does is forever. Everything's passing, everything's vanity, unless God does it. If you want your life to be God's work, then you have to live by faith. By faith we can be good and fitting. We can be a blessing from God to those around us and a faithful vessel of the Holy Ghost. And all of this is a gift of God. His grace abounds to all. Finally, we see that because it is all a gift, that this man holds on to it loosely. After the disaster befalls Job, he rightly says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, in contrast to the rich man who couldn't sleep, the man of faith sleeps very well, knowing that it's all in God's hands. It is his to bless and his to multiply. It is his to take away. If God leaves it in the man of faith's control, then he will use it to the best of his ability, which means that he will eat and drink and enjoy the good of his work. One more thing. This has been a constant refrain from Solomon. Solomon doesn't say, eat, drink, and be merry. His advice and conclusions are not proposing a vain or empty partying it up. No, he says, eat, drink, and enjoy. Rejoice in your labor. And this is important. Real joy is found in productivity. God wants us to see good, but where are we to see it? In our work. And this means that we must work. Laziness and frivolity are empty, and we'll, there's more on that coming next week. But when God gives us the eyes to see his blessing in our work, it is a real joy. It gives a man a sense of purpose, knowing that he has put in a full day, and he may eat and drink with satisfaction, knowing that he's been obedient to God's law. In verse 20, we see God's blessing in all of this, the blessing of God. We know that God's gift is a good one, because it has a certain fruit, verse 20. 
For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. The Hebrew for this verse could be rendered, He will not remember over much the days of his life. He will not dwell unduly on, his, on the days of his life. Dwelling unduly is a terrible curse. This is the kind of thing that can drive a man insane. As I said in my exhortation about the lazy man this morning, sin is irrational. It doesn't make sense. And men who live in sin eventually have to deal with the consequences of it. Their lives have blemishes and they are miserable. They pause to reflect and their reflection isn't pretty. They consider their life and they say, oh no, that's a mess. And this causes them to delve ever deeper into self-pity and self-justification. Woe is me. Look at this mess that I have to deal with. It's not fair. I'm not that bad of a person. This downward spiral is the opposite of the rejoicing and the gratitude prescribed for us in God's law. But here's the rub. We're all sinners. All of our lives have blemishes. Every one of us has the capacity to start picking through our lives with a fine-tuned comb. We stop and consider and we think, Oh, if only I had done that. Or if only I knew back then what I know now. Or if only I hadn't said that. Or if only I was a better father, or if only I had gotten better grades, or a better job, or I would married that person. All of the hypotheticals come, and they get in the way of our rejoicing in the work of God, and the work that God has given us to do. It's really easy to be grumpy. It's very easy to get down. But what good does it do? Is the joy that God, where is the joy that God has for us? There is no good in that grumpiness, in that being down. In fact, it does a great deal of harm. We cannot change the past. And God will judge it anyways. We don't have any control over changing the past, and, and it's all in God's hands anyways. One of the glories of the gospel is it meets us where we're at. The downward spiral can be stopped, and it can be reversed. Where is the joy that God has for us? It's in obedience. If you don't want to dwell unduly on the days of your life, then you need to obey God. And what does that mean? Stop whining and start living. Find something to be grateful for. Do you have breath going in and out of your lungs? Praise God. Rejoice. Can you walk from point A to point B? Hallelujah. Some people can't. And if you can't walk, then can you hear? Can you see? Can you taste? Can you smell? Or can you feel? Thank God. They're all gifts from Him. None of us deserve anything but death ever since the fall. But every one of us is here, alive. And we all have a portion, and we all have a lot in our life. It's not our job to complain about our lot. It is our job to thank God for it 
and praise Him. Accept what He has given you. And then do the best that you know how to do with whatever that is. If He's made you a plumber or a contractor, an engineer or a teacher, go and do your job with gusto. If He's made you a mother or a father, if you find yourself a husband or a wife, I know you're all somebody's children. Go and be the best of whatever you are that you can be. If you invest yourself in the labor God has given you, then you will be too busy to worry about what you are not. If you don't find joy in who you are and the work God has given to you, then you need to confess your sin and turn to Jesus. He loves you where you're at. He loves you for who you are. He died for who you are right now. And he has work for you that will bless you. And this takes faith, but God gives faith. It's the gift of God. Enjoy it. Man's portion is to eat and drink and enjoy his work. The New Testament reiterates this in a number of places. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands men not to worry about food or clothing or shelter because God numbers our hairs on our head. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and he takes care of giving the good gifts. All these things will be added unto you. And the epistles are full of commandments to be thankful and have gratitude. Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4. And again, Paul in Philippians 1. He tells us, we can't lose. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The gospel and the Holy Spirit make us able to live by faith in the light of much more revelation than Solomon had. We need to live life to the hilt, because it is ours to live. Life is a gift, and it should be a spring pouring out of us. Jesus promised us wells of living water. The blessing of God is that men find fulfillment in submission to him. We find joy so that we need not worry or fret, bemoan or regret. We will be busy in the work that God gives us to do, but in faithfulness to His and submission to Him, that work is the joy of our heart. The conclusion of the whole matter, which we read at the end, read at the end of the book, is fear God and keep His commandment, for this is man's all. But this sermon is titled The Heart of Ecclesiastes, because being occupied with the joy of your heart in God's will is the blessing for which we seek in obedience to that law. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Just as the Bible is the word of the Lord, so is this table, the table of the Lord. Both the table and the word contain great promises and precious treasures there. But there is the question that can trouble some. Do these promises really mean us? Do they, is your name really written on them? Is the bread 
as the bread and the wine trays are passed today, will you see in holy inscribed handwriting your name written on the rim? No. But when you read the promises of Scripture, such as I will never leave you or forsake you, does your Bible have mail merged into that page directly so that you know that your name is directly there? The answer is no, obviously, in one sense, but emphatically yes in another. No, you will not see your name of each member of the congregation on the trays as they are passed today, like a name tag that you can see with your physical eyes. No matter how many times you type your name into the biblical software search program that you might have, your name, comes, your name will not come up. But this just means you cannot read your name with your physical eyes. You are invited to read your name, however. This is what faith does. God promises, as externally stated in a general sense, and faith makes it particular or individualized to you. Now, faith doesn't create that particular reality, but rather reveals God's secret decrees that were true all along. Before the foundation of the world, God determined by name who would respond to him in faith. And here you are. God issues a general invitation to all, along with the authorization to act upon that invitation. It is therefore not presumption to come. Act like you read your name on the name tag, and sit down at this table that the Lord has prepared you for, and called you to, and has fed you in worship today. It's true that all are welcome today at the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His Church, an authority that has been expressed by membership in a Christian church. Therefore, by eating the bread and drinking the wine together at this table, we are acknowledging that we are all sinners. We're out without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God who calls us, and that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come, let us join together as a congregation of God's people to enjoy the great blessing that God has made possible. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.